The friend who has to cancel plans to look after their elderly mum. The colleague who leaves their phone on loud so they don't miss a call about their disabled child. The neighbour you've barely seen since their partner's diagnosis. We're surrounded by people who are dealing with the challenges of caregiving, but they often go unseen. It's one of the hardest jobs that anybody can ever do. Not only does your, you know, your loved one become housebound, so do you. You don't socialise much. You know, you could never leave her. I mean, I've had a breakdown as well myself in the past because of it, because I just literally was ill and I knew I was ill and I couldn't stop caring. I didn't have that option. According to Carers UK, there could be over 10 million people providing unpaid care in the UK. We'll all have to care for someone or be cared for over the course of our lives. So why are the challenges caregivers face so often overlooked? And how can we build a system that supports their well-being? The unpaid carers often isolated and unseen, who save the government millions of pounds in professional caring costs. And yet the thanks for so many is being left with barely enough to survive to the end of each month. You're not going to keep a job. Cares allowance is a pittance, so your savings go. After a couple of years, you have nothing left. It's no good just saying, you know, that carers are valued for what they do or that, they, you know, that politicians recognise them for what they do. It's just meaningless words. Welcome to the New Economics podcast. This week we're asking, are we in a crisis of caregiving? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So I'm really chuffed to be joined by writer and activist Emily Kenway to discuss her new book, Who Cares? The Hidden Crisis of Caregiving and How We Solve It. Hi, Emily. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. So let's start off with the focus of your book, The Caregivers Themselves. So could you explain what you mean by this term and why it was so important for you to centre these experiences? Yeah, so by caregiver, I mean people who are looking after those who are long-term unwell, impaired or frail and elderly. So it's not kind of normal parenting, though, of course, there might be parents taking care of impaired children within that. And yeah, at a minimum, it's around 6 million in the UK. But like you said, a lot of people think it's far higher than that because people often don't identify. So we're talking about at a minimum 9% of the UK population. Now, I've been there. I was a primary carer for my mum who had cancer. And it was during that experience that I realised there's so much talked about with social care, the care crisis, the financialization of care homes, you know, all of these things. But the unpaid caregivers were nowhere to be seen within all of these conversations and debates. And I was, you know, really stunned by that omission when you realize that most of the care that's happening in our country, and indeed in every country, including those with more substantial government provided services, is being provided by unpaid family members and friends. And yet, where are we in these conversations? So I wanted to kind of put us on the map, you know, and to intervene and to say, well, this is all very nice that you're having these kind of theoretical conversations, but there are people down here actually doing it and we actually really need some help. Thank you so much. So you, as you say, you draw on a lot on your own experiences of caring 
for your mum. And I know that, you know, often you'll have a pushy publisher saying you have to write about your own personal story. And, you know, it's really bold, I guess, to do that. And I'm wondering what motivated you to include that or made you feel able to do that? Yeah, um, you're, well, you're right about publishers. There are a couple of places where they were like, could we have more of you? And I was like, okay, I'll, if, if you must. Um, but, you know, there were two reasons why I felt that was really important. One was specifically to include my experience because we very rarely hear what perspective people are bringing to a topic when they talk about an issue like this, right? So if you think about kind of policy documents and think tank reports and all of that jazz, Nobody who's researching those is saying, like, here's my experience and this is why I'm viewing it in this way. And indeed, if they did and they did say, actually, I have no experience doing this, we might wonder why we're paying heed. For me, my understanding of care is obviously only mine, but also deeply bodily. That's how I think of it. Okay, it's it's like rooted in what the body needs, behaves like, how erratic it is, all of these things. It's very practical And it's a kind of knowledge that I think shapes, therefore, how I look at what will work and what won't work. And it's choosing to try to say, this is the perspective I'm bringing. And I think that's why some of the solutions I put forward are quite different from what we normally hear. The other thing is that when we talk in terms of statistics and kind of concepts and all of that, it has a distancing effect on people. It's really easy, I think, if you've not been a caregiver to hear, oh, it's 9% of the population, but it's not you, right? So you can kind of switch off when you hear that. And so not only my story, but several other caregivers from around the world are in there because I wanted to marry these different legitimate ways of knowing and kind of force an intimate witnessing of what caregiving actually feels like. I love that. I mean, it makes so much sense. I think, you know, so much of the best activism and organizing I've ever seen has been, you know, by and for people with lived experience of the issues. Because as you say, it just brings a whole different level of fire to the fight and a whole different level of kind of I guess just insight and perspective and, you know, the the knowledge that you speak of, both kind of the embodied and the cerebral and the intellectual and the political kind of all coming together in a way that I just don't think that can happen when you don't have that, you know, that first-hand experience. You mentioned that some people are reluctant to apply the term caregiver to themselves. Um, Why is that? And and what are the implications of it? Yeah, I mean, I didn't recognise that label for myself at all until maybe like, the fourth year into my mum being sick. And I think it's almost sort of uniformly true for people, partly because it often kind of creeps up on you. You know, maybe there's been an emergency and then that's kind of just what's happening and your life has suddenly been thrust into this different mode that you hadn't anticipated or someone's got worse over time, as with things like dementia. So there's, there's a kind of practical temporal reason for it. Also, of course, What we're talking about here is something that feels very natural to do as a product of loving someone, right? So sometimes people, especially women, can balk at the idea of describing themselves as a caregiver when they'll say, but I'm just a wife, I'm just a daughter, you know, as if they're worried about kind of articulating their position in a different way. And I think, you know, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need to label this, right? Because everybody would be understanding, like you said, that sometimes you're going to be performing care in your life. But because it's been so invisibilized, because it's nowhere in our policy regime, or indeed in our daily lives, like no one's asking you at the coffee machine at work how your caring responsibility is for your sick parent. 
because it's missing, we do actually have to label it, right? So it's like, it's kind of necessary to bring it out so that we can put it back in, in the way that it should be. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So it's quite clear from your research and from the book that the experience of being a caregiver can really vary hugely depending on a person's individual circumstances. Yet there also seems to be some really common experiences and emotions that you've kind of alluded to a little bit. So could you talk about some of the kind of physical, mental and and social impacts of caregiving that folks who haven't done it might not be aware of? Yeah. And I love sharing this with people as horrible as it is, because it is so shocking when you actually hear the facts. So I think the physical facts are are particularly shocking. Caregivers have a higher rate of heart disease and diabetes than non-caregivers. They will have poor immune systems on the whole, so higher stress levels, um, causing things like raised cortisol and lower white blood cell counts. So like very clear physical markers of being in an extreme situation and often not having the time or space or kind of sense of legitimacy to take care of themselves. There was a study done where carers said that if they had paid leave from work uh, for five days a year, they would use one of those days to do their own doctor's appointments, right? Because they're not able to do the rest of the time. It's certainly something I recognize. They also have higher mortality rates, which just says everything, right? Like higher mortality rates. None of that is good for the care receivers, I should say, because obviously what you need is someone who's kind of rested and well enough to be really supporting your independence and care. And that, that doesn't work very well. There is a dire impact on people's social and romantic lives. And it was something that all of my interviewees recounted, just saying, you know, friends have just disappeared or, you know, they haven't been able to go to things for so many times that people no longer ask them or people are uncomfortable around the situation. And it's worth bearing in mind here that people are now being caregivers for longer and longer periods of time than ever before because we've extended our lives so much, but with illnesses, right? So you might be talking about someone caring for someone with dementia for a decade, and that has such an effect on their social life. So you end up with this horrific loneliness, obviously even worse for people who are lone caregivers and um, you know suicidalism and higher rates of depression and anxiety than the norm. And of course, there is also a massive financial impact, which relates to these mental, social and physical impacts in the world we live in. So, you know, if you're reducing your working hours or leaving work altogether, then obviously you're going to be more stressed about your future, about your present and so on. So it's quite a scary picture and something that I I really think people might want to pay attention to, you know, because that's what's coming unless we sort things out. Yeah, I mean, you've you've kind of you've alluded to it a few times there, but you know, while there are these common experiences, which are, as you say, so shocking and definitely not something that is talked about at all, let alone enough. But it seems that, that you know, there's also significant implications of a person's socioeconomic position as it relates to their experience of caregiving, both from their income to their job to the amount of other caring responsibilities they have. Could you say a bit more about, I guess, how this breaks down across different sections of society? Essentially, the categories of the problems are the same. But if you have like pre-existing inequalities, pre-existing marginalization, then those problems are going to dial up, right? So obviously an affluent person who's going to have to leave their job is going to eat into their savings and they will probably be very stressed within their own financial context. But a person who was already earning a low wage is very likely to be pushed further into poverty. And indeed, we know that 
caregivers are twice as likely to be using food banks as non-caregivers, so which makes it sort of plain as day, really. We also know from the ONS that the most deprived areas in England and Wales have a higher proportion of people providing unpaid care than the least deprived, which is kind of obvious, but it's good to have it boldly stated like that. And that's because, you know, wealthy people can afford to pay for outside care and they probably have better bargaining power with their employers as well for things like flexible working. So basically, it just sort of entrenches what was already present. There's also a racial aspect So research has found that um, Asian and black caregivers tend to spend more hours caring a week than their white counterparts. And it's a bit under research still, surprise, surprise. But we do know that non-white caregivers are less likely to engage formal services and seek support and more likely to rate the support they receive as unsatisfactory if they do get it. So there's loads of work to be done there. Obviously, we have an ethnicity pay gap in the UK as well. So you're going to have a higher proportion of caregivers of colour who are in poverty. So basically, your starting point, like kind of like everything, right, your starting point with all the ways that your different characteristics and positions intersect is going to shape how extreme your impacts are. And I should also say that's what we see globally as well. So I deliberately took a global perspective because I think we cannot have a solution that secretly relies on the labour of the global south to solve our UK care crisis. And you see the same thing, that the same issues are present. You know, I talked to someone also called Aisha, actually, in Kathmandu in Nepal, who was my age and had cared for her mum with cancer as well. A lot of our issues were the same but hers were intensified because she's in a context with even less support. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there that links to other podcast episodes we've done, right, about kind of the exacerbation of pre-existing issues and the outsourcing of solutions to to the global south. And yeah, there are millions of people, as we know, both in the UK and across the world that are providing care, often at a detriment to their own personal well-being, as we've discussed so far. And I, I kind of want to know how we got here. It feels like caregiving is almost an intrinsic part of what it means to be human. So how have we gotten to a place where it's so difficult for so many people? This is exactly why I wrote the book, because honestly, it was very bizarre to be kind of on the front line of it. And like, this is the most natural thing. You know, I'm with someone I love who needs support. So of course I'm with her. And yet everything is set up to make this as difficult and pathologized and abnormal as possible. What the hell is going on? There's some things that people are probably familiar with that have caused it. So we've got shrinking family sizes. People tend to live further apart. We've got way more people living singly as well than we used to. And so the kind of old unit of care, the family is just absolutely not fit for purpose anymore. Especially when you add that we've increased our lifespan, right? But we've increased it with illnesses and impairments. And I often notice that people who haven't been super close to illness and and disability see it as kind of a static thing and they have this like trajectory in mind where it's kind of static and then potentially someone passes away and in fact it's very unpredictable there's complex care needs throughout this like long long trajectory for lots of people so you've got this hugely increased amount of care needed and this decrease in the kind of assumed unit to provide that care and then you add stuff like we kick people out of hospital much more quickly today which anyone who's actually been a caregiver will know is like a real practical problem right you basically end up becoming a nurse in your own home for that reason now historically 
well, I said it relied on the family, but it kind of relied on two categories within that. On the one hand, enslaved people who were, you know, used by enslavers to care for their sick family members um, and did not have the choice of caring for their own kin. And on the other hand, uh, women family members, so, you know, daughters, unmarried sisters, that whole vibe, who were assumed to kind of have nothing else to do with their life than be available for providing unpaid care. Now, of course, we no longer enslave people and we have most women working, right, across all classes now. So if we've got a commitment to some form of gender justice and to some form of racial justice, we no longer have acceptable ways, thankfully, to address our care crisis unless we take a completely different perspective. And that's one of the things I wanted to draw out, particularly in the book, is that a lot of what the time what I see with discussions of the care crisis is essentially kind of what I would call white feminist arguments about how can I find someone else to do my care for me so I can carry on doing the things I want to do with my life? And that actually completely ignores that there are many women, working class women and women of color who have never even had the chance to do that unpaid care in the home, if you, if you see what I mean. So it's this trying to tease out this dual narrative where it's not about no women should be having to perform care at all. And it's not about no women should be allowed to perform care. It's about we only have justice if we figure it out together. And I don't think we've really thought that through at all. Yeah, because I guess, you know, the ceiling for, or is it the floor? I don't know how what it would be, what, what part of the room it would be in this metaphor, but, you know, um, just seems so different uh, for, as you say, the kind of white feminist argument versus other, because it's kind of like, where your starting point is, is even having the right, the freedom, the opportunity, I guess, to care for your own, rather than that being an addition that you want to have the right to pay someone else to do or, or for someone else to do, you know. Exactly. Super, super interesting. I want to talk a bit more about the gendered nature of, of caregiving. As you say in the book, even in countries which are usually praised for their policies on gender equality, it's women who take on the majority of caregiving responsibility still. So why is that, do you think? I think some of it is a weird cultural obsession with the idea that women are more naturally suited to intimate care. This is coming back to what I said about I have a bodily understanding of care because a lot of care at some point or at points will entail doing intimate tasks. So that means washing someone, changing someone. And we have such a strong idea that it is women who are best suited to doing that, whether the person needing that done is a man or a woman, right? And that is something you kind of notice uniformly uh, when you have your sort of spectacles on to see it. Um, so there is a really practical thing around educating men and ourselves to become kind of humans with each other rather than genders, right? I think gender neutrality is one of the most useful lenses politically to think about care because it makes you see it differently. What we do see is obviously there are men who are caregivers. It's not that no one is, but when they perform care, they tend to do it for different reasons and differently to women. And this is one of those things that once you know it, you start noticing it everywhere. So men will tend to only provide care of this sort for their spouse, whereas women will tend to do it for a wider pool of relatives throughout their life. So they're therefore doing it more. Men will tend to say they're doing it out of love, whereas women will tend to say they're doing it out of duty, 
much more so. And so that has obvious implications for the psychological impacts, right? When there are men and women involved, so say there's a sister and a brother who've got a parent who needs taken care of, the brother will be more likely to choose things he can do at a distance and when he wants around his daily life. So like financial management, right? And the woman, the sister will be much more likely to do the kind of day to day, you know, going around to the house regularly, dealing with emergencies. So her whole life gets interrupted by it. And of course, we have the parallel here of like daddy daycare and parenting where men will, men are kind of surprising to be doing this, right? So they get congratulated. So they have a kind of different social experience as well. In the book, I call this issue a kind of collective gullibility, right? Where men never get asked the reasons why they should or shouldn't be providing care. It's like we just kind of allow their reasons to exist as truth. Whereas women who have to leave their jobs, you know, whose marriages come under strain, all of the research says this, never even get asked in the first place. It's just assumed. And I think the really important thing to realize about how we are here today, despite all of our gender equality, in the UK, we have socio-political arrangements that have extremely sexist foundations, right? So Beveridge himself said that the ideal household was a male earner with a wife and children as his dependents. And we can see this explicitly in the very first caregiver's benefit that we introduced in the UK, which was in 1975. And it was a small sum of money that you could have if you were a single woman or a married man caring for someone. But you could not have it if you were a married or cohabiting woman because you were assumed to be a dependent on the man. And that carries all the way through to today, where we have Carer's Allowance, its successor, which is £76.75 a week, right? And to qualify for that, you have to care for more than 35 hours a week. So just, I mean, the numbers are absolutely, you know, offensive, really offensive. And so, you know, we have this sort of bedrock of sexism that we're trying to patch services on top of, and it really doesn't make sense. That is just astounding. (laughs) <laughs> that, that 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 figure of how much carers allowances and and obviously as you say really kind of drawing that line to uh, from the foundations of I guess the social security net to where we are now is just yeah I mean it's just so shocking. Um, we've talked a lot about the challenges that caregivers face um, and I'm sure there's a lot more that we could say um, on that but I know that the book is also really solutions focused which is brilliant and I think a lot of people will be thinking that they have the solution right you just increase investment in state social care would that fix everything no oh, damn it um, I knew it and I, <laughs> <laughs> no and I, honestly I think that the reason people think that is because they have like a theoretical notion of what care looks like I don't think anyone who is currently or has been a caregiver thinks it will fix it we might think it would help with certain aspects but it is really one part of a broader whole that And the rest of it is not something you can get rid of. If your solution is reliant on that, then you will fail in what you're trying to achieve. And this is because the reason there are so many family slash friend, I think they're the same thing, really, caregivers in the world today is not because it's purely a vestige of past arrangements, nor because of underinvestment in social care, though that is obviously a problem. It's because, firstly, 
bodies are really unpredictable, especially when they're very unwell um, or impaired. And so they're not plannable in the way that I think people envisage or often not, right? It's not the same as childcare per se, where obviously surprises happen, but people do generally expect to be able to send their kids to nursery or school or whatever most days of the year. Instead, this kind of care is always going to create surprises, emergencies that might stretch for a month or, you know, a week, or there's suddenly more care needed or less care needed. And unless you are willing to have a kind of like warehouse of care workers sitting around, like, you know, delivery workers waiting for a call out, you cannot plan a system that doesn't also need to have those family friend caregivers around who have rights to leave work and so on to be able to perform that care. Secondly, it really worries me that people seem to forget that those who are receiving care have a right to have preferences as well, right? So it's so present throughout the social scientific literature, but also throughout the lived experience of people like me and the people I spoke to that many, many people who require care do not want outside help. Or they don't want it for that long stretch when they need quite a lot of help, but they're not yet so ill that they're willing to recognize their dependency. We live in a society obsessed with independence. And so it is not comfortable for people to recognize their neediness and to ask for that outside help. And it's a problem a lot of caregivers deal with. I dealt with it myself. You know, my mum refused outside help a lot. Um, And it's really common. There's actually a study that was performed finding out why neighbors were supporting frail elderly in their neighborhood that found that a proportion of those frail elderly had lied to social services about how they were so that they wouldn't get someone coming around. Like thirdly, obviously, a lot of people who need care cannot advocate for themselves. You know, they might be nonverbal, they might have cognitive impairments. This is like a very practical thing that again, I think gets lost. So a lot of what you're doing, including in countries like Norway and Sweden, where they have substantial services, is navigating bureaucracies and securing services. Indeed, the Norwegian woman who's featured in the book, Lena, she said to me, you need a first class degree to get the support in place, right? And finally, like, we love people, right? So if you love people, you are going to need to be and want to be there with them sometimes, not under such appalling conditions as today, but we, we seem to have forgotten this. So what I'm very clear about in the book is like, yes, there are interesting new models you know, cooperative models and so on that would be much better than what we've got now. Obviously, it's unbelievably stupid to have 15 minute care visits and so on, like everything is wrong. And if you think solving that will address the care crisis, you'd need to speak to people with lived experience because it won't. And I just feel like that's really missed in the policy discussions. Yeah, I mean, of course, it comes back to what we were saying at the beginning about when you're someone who's actually done this, you really know in your bones just how much that is not the answer, <laughs> you know, like how much that's not going to work. Um, and everything that you've said about all the different holes in the, in the understanding of care, but also in the social safety net, it just kind of seems like a no brainer that you would need like s- such a holistic response to this and throwing money at it is not, is not the one. Although of course it's a part of it. Interestingly in the book, you also explore the role technology has to play in caregiving. And I know a lot of people might be concerned at the prospect of kind of robots caring for our elderly relatives or things like that. But why are people turning to tech for solutions? And what does that actually look like? Mm. I mean, I think one of the reasons people are turning to tech for solutions is that kind of governments and tech bros are excited about it. I genuinely think that's part of it. You know, it's like cutting edge and 
and exciting. And there's been, since I wrote the book, someone who did a PhD looking at how the most cutting edge care bots are being used in Japan found that they're not really working. They're kind of being used a little bit and then put in cupboards or whatever. So that's quite interesting and, and says a lot about what we're seeing as kind of press releases from companies and governments that are into this versus the lived reality. Um, having said that, I mean, technology is one of those words that I almost think has to be broken down to have any meaning. So there are forms of technology that are like so helpful to caregivers. For example, there are now hearing aids that have fall sensors in them. So if that person has a fall, you get a notification on your phone. And if you've been a caregiver and parents will recognize this as well, I think that means that you can go and do like a chore slowly because you're not panicking about what could be happening at home. And it's that's one of the things that you just lose in the time you're caring. It's just the ability to do anything under your own timetable to ever feel not hypervigilant. So it can, stuff like that is, is so useful. The problem is that we risk techno solutionism, kind of like, well, this will solve it. Again, it's the same thing as the National Care Service, right? I think this all comes down to kind of psychological need to feel like it's not going to come into your life. So in the book, I tell the story of a couple of sisters who are actually in Germany, and they have a mum who has multiple sclerosis and dementia, very unwell and bedbound. And they both work and check on their mum regularly throughout the day. But they installed a camera so that they could see her from their phone while they were at work, which has really helped them. Like for them, I mean, obviously, in my opinion, that's not a great arrangement overall. But, you know, for them, it's really helped they can see that she's okay while they're not there. Fine. The risk is that if we allow that kind of technology to become how care is performed, then we don't have the arguments we need to have about the primacy of work, right? Because if those sisters see that their mum is actually becoming very distressed, right? Or if they also add like something that monitors her temperature and they see it spike, they need to be able to leave work to go and check on her. So they need the right to do that. They need to not be discriminated against to do that. They need paid carers leave if they want to go and do that and so on. So the problem with kind of technology as a solution is it can edge out all of these other things that we need for care to actually be delivered in a kind of non-dystopian way. You know, I had the good fortune to meet one of the kind of AI driven social robots that was being beta tested in New York at the time and is now in the market. It's like an intelligent Alexa that communicates proactively with you and learns your patterns and your tastes and stuff. And Monica, who had her, was just loving it. She'd been very lonely before and she was finding a great source of companionship. But it was really interesting through the course of talking with her. I discovered that she used to have a paid care worker who'd come and support her. But because the paid care worker had to take a couple of buses to get to her, she was turning up late quite often. And she would always stay the full time she was meant to stay. She'd overstay, you know, and they got on really well. Nonetheless, the company that was sending her would dock her pay because she checked in late, right? Usually when you're a care worker, you've got to kind of dial something that checks you in for your shift. So the, the worker had to leave because she couldn't keep losing bits of pay, even though she was actually doing the full shift. And for Monica, the interviewee, it was like a great loss. And so she'd sort of um, relegated herself, I guess, to a machine because she didn't have faith in the system of human provision that has been created. And for me, that was extremely telling. We say that necessity is the mother of invention, 
And my question is like, what is it that's made technology seem necessary in this context? And it is a set of political choices. It's not actually our bodies and our longevity and so on. Bloody hell, Emily. <laughs> it's just, I'm just like, don't even know where to start with that. Like, I think it's just, I mean, obviously we could, it sounds like we could do a whole podcast on the intersection of tech and care, right? Um, you know, like the ways in which it could be really helpful and also the ways in which it could be a bit of a, what's the word for something that people think will solve something, but then doesn't? Yes, exactly. That. All right. So while we're increasing the provision of social care and we're utilizing new tech, you know, and we're thinking about all these different ways that we can help solve this issue. You also talk about some more radical transformative solutions, which, you know, we've touched upon through this, but I want to end by just honing in on how we can build a society that works better for caregivers in a holistic sense. I think the answer is that it's not a society that works better for caregivers. It's a society of caregivers, right? It's a society in which everyone considers themselves to be a caregiver, whether that's past, present or future. For me, this is the distinction between people thinking of care as a sector, which I think is a like psychological distancing mechanism, right? It's like very convenient that we seem only to be able to talk about it as a field of economics or a sector now versus what some feminist theorists have called it as a species activity, right? It is all permeating and it is everybody's responsibility in some way if you love anyone and if they are human and therefore will sometimes need care. And I, I sort of fairly unflinching in the book about requesting that people accept that and accept that you will be a caregiver and face up to that. Because I do think you know, I'll, I'll go on to sort of actual kind of practical things in a sec, but those things will not happen if people remain as kind of conveniently fearful as they are of that truth. It's something I notice a lot. So yes, we talked a bit about what has to happen in the workplace. And I think gender neutrality is a brilliant lens to bring to that. If you think in terms of everybody being kind of as likely to be a caregiver as everyone else, then you end up having like a radically reformed set of assumptions about work and how much of someone's life will have paid work in it, can have paid work in it. But I also, the book kind of culminates in this idea of a commons of care. And again, this comes back to, I guess, my very real understanding of what care is. A commons is usually understood as something kind of tangible. So, you know, historically, like a grazing ground, it means a resource that's collectively shared and collectively stewarded. So it's both the resource and the practice. Now, care, as caregivers will know, as I'm sure parents know as well, is not nebulous. It's not fluffy. It is constituted by tangible actions. You know, it's like watching someone while they shower or helping them shower. It's making them food. It's buying their food shopping. It's all of these things, take them to hospital and so on. And so a commons of care, the blades of grass are those acts, right? So it's about how do we together create this collective care resource where we are able to step in for each other, to offer support, to receive support, you know, not being afraid of our neediness. And what does that look like on a practical level? Well, for me, it looks like two things. On a more intimate, personal level, it looks like something I've called kinning to kin, a verb, which is me making up a word to try to encapsulate an active intentional process of creating bonds of people who may not be your biological or legal family, right? Of being able to say to people, I need help, can you support me? And knowing that that won't be reciprocated 
you know, you won't be reciprocating it immediately in the same way as you don't expect with biological family. And, you know, you can do that practically. I talk in the book about one of the ways that I did it in my own life and kind of created this tight knit group of people. And I think kinning is, is something we can all do more of in our personal lives. At a wider level, we can look at neighborhood collective care networks. This is a kind of mutual aid idea, right, that we saw in COVID, asking ourselves, you know, why did it take a pandemic to legitimize that? And where has it gone now? And starting the work of learning a vocabulary of shared neediness and shared capability, like we all have both. And I think that that is honestly the only way that we can truly lift the the real unacceptable level of pressure off caregivers, which I remind everyone is all of us at some point. The thing that I just want to say, though, is that everything I'm saying is only possible with the right government provided framework. So it's not to let the government off the hook and say like, oh, like self-help is great. You know, it's to say, obviously, that's not going to work while we're all exhausted and at work all the time, while we don't have any rights or entitlements. So it does require redistributive changes it requires rights you know working protections a livable caregiver's income and things like that and I do think some of those things are down the road right I do think if you look at the trends on longevity and sickness and care if you look at the like tedious business cases on how care is bad for productivity if it's not supported in the workplace and all of that jazz I do think some of these things are very, very winnable at a political level. And obviously, the other things I talked about are things we can all be doing from tomorrow in our own lives as well. I think the tour that you've taken me on through this uh, <laughs> through this podcast, it's been, honestly, it's been really, really enlightening and shocking. But also, as you say, it's just, I kind of, like most people, I guess, who don't have lived experience of this, you make certain assumptions about what you know and, you know, about and what the experience is like and also what the... I guess the social infrastructure is that surrounds it. But I think it's just so important, the work that you're doing, both in terms of the book and the journalism and activism that you do around this, just to kind of make it so clear just how far we have to go and just how much has to change, you know, not just, you know, funding this properly, but actually changing the whole way we think about it. And I just, yeah, I'm just so grateful that you've had this conversation with us and and shared your experiences and written the book because it's seems like a real gift. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. No worries. That is all we've got time for on this episode of the New Economics Podcast, lovely listener. Um, Emily, thanks again. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? How can they get the book? Plug all the things. (laughs) Uh, The book is available from all good bookstores online and in person. So I'd love it if you felt like buying it. And I'm on Twitter at Emily Kenway and on Instagram at This Is Emily Kenway. Lovely. That is it for today's new economics podcast, but we'll be back soon with more. Don't worry. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone, Margaret Welsh and Katrina Gaffney. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. Stay safe.